Thank you, Bernita. Welcome to Supply Chain Briefs, the podcast that discusses the challenges, innovations, and critical issues of today's global supply chains. I'm your host, Joseph Moretta, and thank you for joining us. On today's special episode, we have an esteemed panel to discuss the current global supply chain disruption that seems to be plaguing companies and industries across the globe. Before we get started, just a few programming notes. Tonight's episode will be recorded and available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So if you want to download this episode later on, you can certainly do that. Um, before we bring to the panel, I would like to give a special welcome to Joe Shedlowski. Uh Joe is a, one of our esteemed guests, and Joe has over 40 years of experience in leadership and supply chain in, in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. Um, Joe directed supply chain functions and sales operations and planning at uh, n- numerous healthcare organizations. So we'd like to welcome Joe to today's episode. Welcome, Joe. Okay. And with that, we're gonna get the discussion going. So again, just a few programming notes for the panelists. Um, This is an open discussion, and I'm just going to be throwing out some questions for you. Feel free to answer it uh, when you feel you might have something of importance to throw in there. So I just want to get started real quick um, and understand kind of what is the the landscape that we're currently experiencing? We all know that we're hearing the words supply chain disruptions. What does that exactly mean? So I was hoping we could start there and kind of build the story a little bit. Does somebody want to explain what the kind of the landscape of, of what's going on in the supply chain realm is? Would you like me to, Joe? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, so I've been living in the supply chain for about 30, 35 years now. Um, and about maybe 10 years ago, nobody knew what, nobody even heard of the word supply chain. Um and it's been an interesting evolution. Now today, every news report, everything you hear is all about supply chain. Kind of started in the uh, beginnings of COVID when we had issues with the test sets, with the test kits, and the uh, ultimately ramping up and all the problems that we occur. But what we're experiencing now in a supply chain is something that we haven't experienced uh, as, at least uh, far back as I can remember. Um, and I think it's a I think it's a uh, combination of multiple factors that are that are leading to this. It's obviously coming out of a pandemic, supply and demand, the classic case of supply and demand, where uh, economies started reopening, uh, capacities started to be back, you know, were shut down in, in many, many regions of the world, including the United States and, of course, Asia. Um, and now with the throttle opened up and demand increasing and not being able to wrap up ramp up the factories as fast enough we we've obviously have a supply a supply issue but that is transcended not only in material uh, but it's also in from the logistics standpoint it's why we have a shortage of uh, of, of people tra- trained uh, some of them uh, decided to get out of uh, the current occupations and move on uh, so there's multiple factors involved here that have uh, led to the supply chain issues. And quite honestly, I think uh, some of them is uh, a, a making of our own uh, because we did not really anticipate these type of situations. And quite honestly, we did not do enough pre all of these issues in industry, I believe, in order to prepare you know, for these type of catastrophic events. And hopefully there'll be a, you know, a silver lining and a gray cloud uh, that we're going to learn from this and, and make things better. And I think some of the things we'll probably talk about tonight um, is that very thing. How can we uh, improve upon what we've experienced and hopefully set up a scenario or a future, future state uh, where we're not impacted by the situations uh, that we're impacted with today. So the, in a nutshell, uh, you know, there's, it's a combination of factors that have come together at exactly the same time that I think have caused this problem. And now we have to uh, be creative and 
and think outside the box to get us out of it, and then think forward into the future in order to uh, implement uh, uh, strategies that are going to hopefully mitigate and not allow us to be in this situation again. That's wow. my view. Perfect. That's a great uh, way to just jump into things here. Uh, and you bring up a lot of inf- a lot of interesting points here, um, uh, Ron. And I think uh, with the panel that we have right now, I think they're really going to be able to dive in deep into what exactly is going on. And I think I want to start um, over in the demand planning uh, arena. Because as you said, we have all these disruptions going on and now people are ordering infrequently. Um, so I, I want to throw this question out there. Um, how has the demand planning function responded to the supply chain challenges in the COVID era? What, what changes have, you, have we been able to make uh, in this approach? Maybe, Mark, you want to take on that question? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we've definitely um, seen with COVID um, all of our basic paradigms being broken. So the traditional way of doing demand planning is to use history to uh, extrapolate history and to try to predict the future from it. Bring in a, a, a event like COVID, it breaks that historical reference. And now you have to start to think about what could happen in the future and not left reference history, but reference scenarios. And so what we did is we built when COVID first started, knowing that this was new territory for us, um, scenarios of high, medium, and low demand and high, medium, and low supply, and did kind of a Monte Carlo approach where we first decided, you know, on the demand spectrum, where do we think things are going to be? And then based on that, where we want to supply on the supply spectrum, and then carefully monitor kind of how those decisions played out. So in our situation, we went with the high demand scenario, um, meaning we uh, looked at kind of what the options were with people moving from uh, in-store to online. Uh, we have products that we're gonna accelerate due to COVID, uh, like cleaning products. And we made some really um, important decisions uh, based on those scenarios. And then basically what happens is Rather than going through a demand planning and monthly replan process, we went from monthly to weekly to daily. Wow. And we to develop leading indicators. So, you know, normally, rather than looking backwards, you look forward. So we looked at things like, um, you know, uh, store traffic, uh, online traffic, um, certain indicators that we got from the government, and really changed the way we looked at things into what were some of the signals that would help us confirm whether we were in the right direction on demand even before we actualized sales um, using those living indicators? And now that we're trying to move from, let's say, COVID to post-COVID, we're looking back today at what happened before COVID and using that pattern to establish what we think demand will be like as we hopefully move into um, more of a vaccinated, kind of a less intense COVID and into a new situation. So a lot of this is just being agile, thinking through um, the possibilities, making an intelligent trade-off decision and converting from your traditional monthly to weekly to daily process. Yeah, very, very good points that you bring up there. Um, and. It's, I mean, it's evident to see, everybody sees these issues that are, that are popping up and it's evident to see that we really do need to be able to adjust, adapt and be able to respond much more quickly than we did maybe in the past. And I think we kind of uh, learned that lesson the hard way. Um, and I think we're seeing right now, and I'm gonna bring in uh, one of our guests, Joe Shabowski, uh, because I think we're currently seeing this played out the most currently in our ports. Our port congestion has been um, disrupted immensely. So I would like to bring on Joe Shleski uh, to see if he could discuss a little bit what's going on with the port dis- uh, congestion. Why is the container backlog so bad? Maybe discuss um, you know, what happened, how did we get here, and then where do we go from here? So Joe, could you comment on that? 
Joe on the call still? Is he muted? Oh, I sure am. I was muted. I'm sorry about that. Okay. So <laughs> this probably works a little bit better. Um, so thank you, Joe. Um, you know, first of all, it's a, it is a pleasure to be on this call with all, all you esteemed folks. And I know some of you from the Long Island chapter and had an opportunity to speak up there several times. I say up there because for the past year and a half, I've been down in uh, living in Florida in the Jacksonville area, just below Jacksonville, uh, which is great in, in a number of ways. And in supply, you know, supply chain has so many links in it and so many pieces. In Jacksonville, the predominant uh, piece where you see industry focusing on is the uh, the uh, transportation end, you know, so we're a major port city, a lot of railroad activity here, a lot of trucking and of course the, the ports. So uh, I've also um, been uh, able to, I'm on the uh, Transportation Logistics Council of the uh, Jacksonville Chamber of Commerce. So I've had an opportunity to meet and interact with a number of folks who have shared some of these concerns and I've been studying the, the port situation in, in particular and Lately, we hear so much about it in, you know, Los Angeles uh, and, well, California in general, uh, Long Beach. So what's really, what's been happening here? I mean, we know that basically <laughs> there's been an imbalance of supply and demand. And I think, you know, the folks that spoke before, you know, Ron and so forth, really kind of alluded to the major factors there. And we look at it a little bit closer, though, and we say, well, we may feel a sense of relief in hearing that maybe they're going to go to three shift operations uh, at the docks, but that's just one of many, uh, let's say, critically constrained resources or bottlenecks that are erupting uh, along the way. Uh, you know, we've kind of added fuel to the fire of the, the vaccine or the COVID situation by um, in some cases, you know, people not protect themselves properly. There've been a number of outages and sick workers in plants and factories, as well as in the, the transportation chain right along the way that have, have interrupted the natural flow of supply. But then we've also, you know, through well-meaning efforts to, uh, to stimulate and, and to help people that, you know, may have been out of jobs, there's been a lot of stimulate, stimulation like in the economy and people have more money to spend uh, with less money spent on gas and commuting. Well, I don't know about gas these days, but you know they had more time at home, more time to entertain projects and buying this and replacing that. So we drove demand up in those ways. At the same time, we were uh, hurting our supply of, of workers. There was a fear, and there is a fear, a justifiable fear of inflation and other reasons that people would want to make advanced purchases and, you know, that all adds to the bullwhip effect and it kind of feeds on itself. Los Angeles, the ports in, in California, Los Angeles complex there, expect to have 10.8 million containers shipped this year. And we've been kind of taking for granted that we could manage the normal ebbs and flows of demand on this scale. But this isn't the ebbs and flows. And this isn't a temporary blip. It's extending and it's magnifying and it's sort of feeding on itself for the reasons that I described. So what's happening is there's a lot of uh, activity coming from Asia to the United States, but not much in reverse. Mm. Containers are building up in the wrong places, you know, empty. And even getting the containers off those vessels, and now there's almost 100 vessels in California just sitting there. Doctor can't get, get at to everything. So it's kind of augmenting the problem onto itself. If you can't get containers off the ships, then you can't move them from uh, the from the port to the distribution center network. Uh, trucks are, may or may not be available. Um, chassis may not be available. Drivers may not be available. We talk about drivers and say, well, okay, I guess there's a shortage of truck drivers nationwide. And there was before this pandemic started, but now it's more acute. And why? If you, I've talked to some truckers and people that, that, uh, that run small trucking companies around Jacksonville. And one guy was pretty successful at retaining truck drivers uh, by, it's not just a matter of paying them more. You know, they, they really have a very, very tough time of it and a very frustrating time of it. Trying to get a chassis, trying to get navigate through these rail yards uh, and, and the docks just to pick up and deliver loads and sometimes delivering loads 
to a warehouse that won't even accept it because they don't have the personnel there to unload it. So we have some critical links in supply chain. And we've also got a system that, you know, these pieces were not really connected. They're not really sharing information and being well integrated. So for example, you know, a couple of the rail lines said, well, we're not going to ship any more uh, rail lines from, we're not going to have any rail activity from LA to, uh, to Chicago area because Chicago's got 25 miles worth of trains backed up trying to get into the port. So instead, they say, well, we're not going to do that. So instead, what happens? The demand increases then for truck transport because the rail connection is, is temporarily suspended. So we don't necessarily see a lot of integration of information and a lot of integration of effort right now. And I think people are starting to learn and maybe we are going to come out of this more resilient and more prepared for future situations because we're going to simply learn how to work together better for the greater good of the entire supply chain instead of trying to optimize one's own piece of it. And I think that's a very important takeaway if I can use that to kind of summarize what I've been saying in my observations about, uh, about this end of the supply chain. The port situation is not going to get uh, resolved in a hurry. And there's a deadline that already is out there like looming and say, we better figure something out because the longshoremen have a contract that expires on July 1st of next year, which used to sound like a real long time away, but uh, that could uh, put us in an extra precarious situation if we haven't got a nice, you know, normal flow of, uh, of supply by then. Yeah, I can definitely see how we've, we've kind of created ourselves a, a perfect storm, if you will. Um, and we're kind of stuck in that. And I heard two components there. And Mark, I do see your hand up. I will get to you. Um, but I heard two components in, your, in, in what you just stated that I think are key components. Um, and that was transportation and people. Uh, that seems to be the two uh, components that seem to be uh, affiliated with all of these type of, types of disruptions. So uh, I, I want to bring on uh, Marty, if Marty can come on, and I wanted to ask him the question, given the recent supply chain disruptions, what is the biggest challenge today for, our, for transportation suppliers? And, and kind of unpack that for us, because I, like I said, I, I feel like that is one of the big components that we're currently uh, experiencing. Yeah, sure, Joe, you bring up a, a very good point. The issue, the major issue which Joe touched on is where do we find all these, these truck drivers to <clears throat> provide service? And what's important to note here is it can hit an org a transportation organization in two different ways. So it depends if your force is pretty much labor versus non-labor. So if you take an organization like a major LTL carrier or a UPS, it's pretty much predominantly um, the, the folks that work there are, are, are labor. So for those, there is a more predictable cost, right? Because when you, your labor is such a big part of your cost and what is a big component for a transportation provider is being able to predict your cost. So if you're a unionized carrier, you can predict your cost because you have a contract with your union. But if you take somebody like non-union, like Federal Express, they're dealing with a, a very difficult scenario. They're non-union, so even though their labor costs may be a little bit lower, now it's unpredictable when you run into a crunch when there's a, a shortage of labor supply. So that's an important note to, to keep in mind as it relates to transportation providers. If you're unionized, you'll be high, but it's predictable, so you can kind of manage that. You may be lower if you're non-union, but it's unpredictable. Now you have to find these people to move those packages, ride those uh, uh, transportation routes. And now it's in a market where it's gonna cost you more and it's, in a, it's very uh, unpredictable. So that's a big comp uh, differentiation when it comes to a transportation provider, union versus non-union. That's, very, that's really, really interesting. And, um, and I think you just kind of led us into the other component and that's people. 
because um, it's transportation and people. It seems to be the common denominators of all of these disruptions. So for, for my next uh, panelist that I would like to bring on, Rita, if you can chime in here. I'm curious to, to pick your brain because you have a good background in, in, in HR and retaining talent. And so I wanted to ask you, what type of leadership and soft skills are particularly helpful in this rapidly changing environment? Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. Very interesting comments from my panelists. Look, you'd have to be living under a rock not to know that you cannot find people today. The employee shortage is very paramount and people need to start thinking out of the box. And what I have to offer is that there are so many people out there literally looking for you and looking for jobs, but they don't know that you're looking for them. They don't quite know where to go. And what does that mean? That means that the employer, the unions, and, and, and all of the people that my panelists have alluded to need to think out of the box, need to get into the high schools, need to start recruiting those kids that maybe don't want to go to college. Maybe they want to be a truck driver. They don't know how to start doing it. Maybe we need to start talking to driving schools. Maybe we should start offering free driving instructions. This is what we need to do. We need to start thinking out of the box. And for small business owners who are out there listening to me right now, I know that there's transport problems. I know we need truck drivers, but I also know that a lot of my clients, because I am a director of HR consulting for many, many, many companies here on Long Island, are small businesses in manufacturing that are suffering dearly because of the lack of people inside their organizations. I know it has a lot to do with supply chain because they need to get the product in the door. Once they get the product in the door, they don't have enough people to manufacture. And one of my clients said to me, Rita, if I could hire enough people, I could double my business, but he can't find the people. So I want to just say, Joe, that um, although it may not be addressing the supply train issue and getting the truckers, although I offer, please start getting into the high schools and talking to these kids. They may be very attracted to these kinds of, of positions, but many, many of the small businesses who may be listening to me today and can't get the product out the door because they can't hire maybe computer techs or whatever, look within your organization. The people you're looking for may be sitting right in front of you. What I have instructed my clients to do is take a look at all the job descriptions that are involved with your corporation. The way you have a very successful company today and some one of my panelists said it is, we're all in it together. If you could build that kind of culture within your organization, that you're all in it together, take a job description, give somebody a promotion, split it up so that maybe if you can't find a person, some people within your organization are going to be able to do the job that you can't find. Um, the other thing I, I, I highly recommend is um, sign-on bonuses to get people in. Referrals from the people that work within your company. Uh, if they're if they're a very very hard time finding people, all of these things are very proactive and very 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 different. Uh, alumni organizations uh, and they will help to get the people in your organization. And again, I know I'm not addressing the supply chain issue and trying to get truck drivers and getting those things off, off out of the ports and into the, uh, into the companies. But good people are sometimes right in front of you. Uh, I hope that I've offered some wonderful uh, ideas, but keeping positive culture within your company and spreading the wealth and trying to promote from within and trying to get people within your organization to know that you're all in it together. This is a very trying time. I've been in human resources a very long time. I have never seen it like this ever, ever. We need to think out of the box and we all need to know that we are in it together. Yeah, I, I, and I can hear it in your voice that there's so much frustration because of the lack of the labor force, but it, it seems to me that the solution might already be there if we would just open our eyes and, and, and acknowledge it. Um, so I want to thank you for that because I think you've given everybody here 
a lot to think about in terms of how to manage their labor forces, how to how to maybe rethink how they're going to be marketing these opportunities, getting the word out there. Um, and I, and it's got me thinking, and I, I, I'd like to bring on St. Clair for this, um, for this question. Uh, St. Clair, if you're on the call and you can unmute yourself. Um, looking sure, yeah. forward, regarding what um, uh, Rita was just giving all that information that she gave us, how are supply chain leaders going to manage and train differently in order to attract and retain the best talent in their organizations? What are they going to be doing differently now? What, are, what strategies are they going to be used uh, to be using? I'm hoping you could just uh, give us a little insight into that because I think that might be one of the missing pieces in this conversation right now. Joe, great question. Um, as you know, I am a uh, you know, CSCP certified supply chain professional. I also teach the uh, certification class for um, ASCM. So I've worked and taught a lot of uh, different industries. Um, Scholastic book company, LNF Manufacturing is an aerospace, uh, MTA, New York City um, Transit, et cetera. And, you know, the big thing that comes out uh, to me is that, you know, as we, you know, continue this generational shift and, you know, baby boomers start to migrate out of the workforce and new generations become the bulk of our workforce, uh, we need to understand that there is no one size fits all in managing and training the people in our supply chains. So you're going to have different constraints if you're uh, an aerospace company as opposed to your New York City subways, uh, MTA, as opposed to, you know, you're a CPG company and you're making apple pies, uh, et cetera. So just as we have, you know, maturity models to address um, our supply chains, we need to have similar models to address our people. So as a, a CSCP instructor, you know, it's become pretty uh, evident to me that, you know, skill development in the areas of hiring, coaching, training, and developing will be very important. So despite, you know, a stereotype of uh, the new generation of supply chain professionals being focused on you know, data analytics and process optimization. Uh, one thing that I have uh, seen is that they also need soft skills that foster relationships and build trust. So what are these soft skills? Because, you know, supply chain management um, requires interpersonal skills, diplomacy, tact, team orientation, the supply chain manager of the future, and the future is now, you have to be able to communicate. Joe touched on earlier that, you know, there's sometimes a disconnect uh, in the different transportation areas. And, you know, supply chain, as I said, there's no one size fits all. Supply chain isn't really a chain or linear. Uh, there are multiple touch points within the supply chain. So communication is, is a key piece of that. Uh, one of the things that I've done throughout my career, um, you know, when I was in uh, industry and, you know, working for companies like Foot Locker and Golden Crust, uh, et cetera, is that I always try to replace inventory with information. Hmm. So if you can replace inventory with information, I'm not going to go into the whole big discussion on working capital and all, everything else, but um big part of everyone's, um, you know, balance sheet is, uh, you know, typically inventory. So having the ability to build those relationships, having the soft skills, communication, organizational and time management skills, critical thinking skills, those are all the things that supply chain managers need now to manage through uh, the crisis that we're facing in the supply chain. Adaptability and resilience. Just like Mark said, you know, the normal process of doing demand planning, you know, once uh, a month or once a quarter, he got down to now we're doing demand planning on a daily basis. So it's, right. a, it's a whole new it's a whole new paradigm. So, 
you know, for me, from my viewpoint, supply chain management has always been about relationships. And, you know, with all the technology and AI and machine learning, and with all due respect to, you know, Star Wars and C-3PO, it will be decades <laughs> before technology can replace people in relationship management. So, you know, <laughs> bottom line, soft skills remain essential to developing and maintaining the business relationships that accomplish the process, the decision, and profit goals. And when you need to collaborate, having well-educated supply chain professionals in the room will be able to get you the answers that you need to make the best decisions possible. So yes, you can have all the uh, quantitative and analytical skills you want, but at the same time, it's all about relationships. It's, also, it's all about building trust. And when you make a promise, you have to deliver on that promise. And wow. that's where it comes into having those soft skills, diplomacy, tact, interpersonal skills, communication. It's still a people business. You know, we hear all the stories about, yeah, there's a fully automated factory or whatever, and they're gonna be self-driving trucks that drive across the country. But yeah, we're not quite there yet. You still need people, you still need to communicate, you still need to uh, have the personal skills because the supply chain has and will continue to be about relationships and trust. Wow, yeah. So um, I, I definitely see where you're coming from with that. And at the risk of insulting C-3PO and Star Wars fans any further, <laughs> I think I, what I want to do is I actually want to ask um, Mark and uh, Ron, maybe to chime in, because you mentioned something really interesting, technology. Um, and I'm hoping that Ron and Mark will be able to touch on what role does process and technology play in helping organizations respond to greater supply chain complexity? So I'm going to start with uh, Ron, and then I want to move over to Mark to see what his viewpoint is. So Ron, could you touch on that a little? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a hybrid world, everybody. Um, Sinclair, you are right on target. You know, it comes down to the ability to communicate, the ability to build relationships. Uh, but what we need to do is we need to blend the technology into the reality of human nature, right? Uh, and it's very difficult because, you know, Many depend upon, you know, you got various generations now that are working together and you might have a, a younger generation that's really more leaning on technology and you have the uh, older generation, which is, is, which is coming from where, you know, St. Clair talks about that it's all about relationships. And quite honestly, they both become very critical. So the, 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 the art of it is to be able to, bring technology in, but not lose the ability to connect, right? Uh, we talk about Star Wars, um, you know, I, there was a movie some time ago called Avatar, right? And Avatar was a movie about, uh, it had mul multiple messaging, right? That was brought into it. But what was key about Avatar was the ability to connect, right? Connect with nature, connect with it was the networking, and we talk about networking every day. So what we can't do is we cannot become a society that's one-sided. And I love to use the word hybrid. When I teach in my teaching capacity, I am an industry guy, but when I teach, uh, I prefer to use a hybrid model because that integrates the technology of advanced learning, uh, software platforms that are out there now like VoiceThread, which allows us to communicate individually anytime, anywhere and make it appear to be a continuous live conversation. But what we're doing is we're able to look at each other in the eye. We're able to connect and communicate uh, because that's how we get through. And like Rita said, we get through it together. And unfortunately, if we silo and become 
a technology-driven society, we're going to lose a huge, huge uh, component, which is what makes the world go around, and that's relationships, right? Absolutely. Um, back, a few, back some about eight, nine years ago, I pre- we had something called the uh, Japanese uh, tsunami. I don't know if people remember that, but that was a, a tidal wave that occurred, uh, massive destruction on some of the shore over in Japan. And there was one factory there that was the only factory in the world, and that factory produced something called, um, uh, it, it was basically an ingredient that goes into a component, right? Uh, that it was a resin. It was the only, it's a Mitsubishi factory, the only one in the world that produced it. They were the sole sauce. All of the component, all the chip manufacturers relied upon that, that resin in order to produce their product. And when that factory got flooded away, there was a complete stop and there was a complete shortage in resin, which drove an industry issue. One of our key suppliers um, in, that we purchased from, uh, a, a component manufacturer, not going to mention the name, I developed a very, very good relationship with their vice president of supply chain. And it was myself, head of my supply chain organization in our company, Telephonics, which is a defense industry, which is a defense company. It was myself and that individual, the relationship and the trust that we built up that we were able to not not, not do what many were doing, which was hoarding material. We were basically able to communicate my current and my current requirements, my future requirements, and then be able to allocate resin from the incoming supplier so we could satisfy our immediate orders as well as our orders that are being forecasted. I would not have been, massive major distributors, authorized distributors could not understand who we would normally purchase this product directly from, how we were able to get our material. But it was relationship. It was trust. It was communication. That's how we did it. But we utilized technology from the standpoint of uh, aggregating demand, being able to get feedback from our customers, know what the future expectations were, and be able to establish both the current and future state through portal technology, you know, through our portal and through communication. So that was an example of how we have to leverage and how we have to not lean on any one component, but be thinking outside the box, like Ruta said, bring it together and win it together. Because at the end of the day, we need to move ourselves from a individual competitive environment to a, a national environment, right? Because we're in the United States. This is our country. We live, we bring up our families, we earn a living. We need to get away from the concept of, uh, you know, competition is good, but when there's benefit to both sides, we need to be able to share that benefit and be able to excel our business. So in a whole, we succeed and not necessarily isolate one particular industry from another. That is my view. Absolutely. And, and, and I think you brought on an, an interesting uh, idea and the that's the importance of supplier relationships. And you, you can't make a plan of where you want to be until you've assessed where you are. And when where you are changes dramatically, dramatically, um, then where you're going to be headed is going to change dramatically. Unless you make that switch and that change, um, you're going to wind up miles away from your destination. And I, I use the old adage that a ship that has its rudder set one degree off course is going to wind up a thousand miles away from its destination. Um, and and it's, Joe, it's, just it's, on that point, just on that point, everybody's got to realize that that, like somebody said before, it changes minute by minute. And that's why our communication has to be near neural, near neural. Absolutely. And agility is definitely one of those topics that companies need to really um, apply and adopt and really integrate into their supply chains. So I I do want to give Mark um, an opportunity to uh, respond to this, to just to get a different perspective. Mark, could you comment on that and, and, and add any information to this? What are your thoughts? 
How are yep. you seeing the landscape play out? And just give us a, a little uh, feedback on that. Sure. So just to piggyback off of what Ron was saying, I think one thing we should admit is a lot of what we've been doing over the last few decades in supply chain is trying to find the lowest cost suppliers. We've been going to the Far East. We go into countries where we think we have an advantage because of the differential in labor costs. But we not, haven't necessarily understood that the longer lead times and the greater complexity um, have actually created a lot of issues for us. So when we start saying, how do we think differently about our paradigms? We, we have to start thinking differently about our global supplier network, what the risks are, what a um, act of God will do to test that supply chain and how in the future to protect ourselves and really think about resiliency and things like dual sourcing or different geographic sourcing or what would happen if we had a, a extended delay on transportation. So I want to add that it's part of that extended supply chain analysis that we need to do and build into how we think about running companies. In terms yes. of, um, and then I would say in terms of process and technology, I tend to think of it a little bit like Sinclair was saying where it's people, process and technology. So assuming you've got the right people trained in the right way with the right understanding of their priorities, um, process can be very important because process is the way that you can coordinate across your different functions. So we've done a lot of work to build a sales and operations planning process, um, which is just basically a fancy way of saying, we're trying to balance demand and supply, and we're trying to make sure every function within supply chain and outside of supply chain is coordinating on that central plan. And so that means sales, marketing, um, all of the functions that finance that also extend beyond just supply chain. And those daily meetings we talked about earlier, they weren't just supply chain because we had to make sure all of these functions were on the same page and understood. So having a, a solid process that can unify a company and provide clear direction and have an action register and an understanding of what we're trying to accomplish, that can be really important and be a competitive advantage. In terms of technology, technology I view as an enabler. So it's not technology for technology's sake but there are things it can do if used judiciously. So we did a test in COVID where we had demand planning in kind of a, your normal way where you use you know, what they call time series algorithms. And we tested against an AI tool that was able to take short history and try to extrapolate and interpret it. It turned out the AI tool um, was able to do a better job than our traditional method and even some of our scenarios that we were doing manually. And so it's a great example where technology can fit in in, in niche areas and really help. And we can leverage what's called big data um, because we're getting tons of information and it's been very difficult for people to distill out of it key trends and what, what to do from it. And, and that's where some of these tools can be really helpful in combination with everything else. Right, right. I And it, very, very interesting. Um, and in terms of AI and being able to not only plan for tomorrow, but I think where the industry is moving is being able not just to plan for tomorrow, but predict tomorrow to get that information, that automated uh AI information into our systems to say, to do what you were saying earlier, a little bit of a scenario planning, the what ifs, what if this happened? What if something goes wrong in our production facilities? What if something goes wrong in our planning? We, we're, we're changing everything, you know, not just weekly anymore, it's daily, as you mentioned uh, earlier. Yeah, um, exactly, Joe. And then on top of that, better companies have SOPs. They have standard operating procedures that kick in when there's an anomaly or when there's a problem that help guide us as well. And so that pressure testing of the supply chain using COVID as, as a backdrop right now, it really does give us the opportunity to get better post COVID and, and really understand what would be a more stronger 
supply chain. And I think that's, for a lot of us, that's really empowering and, and really exciting in this environment. Very, very um, informative. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for that. And I think that kind of piggybacks on to something else that I would like to go back to Rita on. Because Rita, with all of this going on, with all these technologies, uh, you know, having to change processes, how can companies maintain a positive work culture during this? This has to be a very trying time for companies. We have a lot of things that are changing, to, um, as Mark and Ron alluded to, things are changing daily. Um, so what can companies do to maintain that positive environment to keep their workforce going? Because we all know that people are the most important asset in, in, a, in a company. And without them, we can't do anything. So how do we maintain that positive culture? Thank you, Joe. I'm sitting here ready to burst with that kind of information. <laughs> uh, I, I had I, a feeling. I had a feeling. <laughs> yeah, I'm listening to all this because, you know, my business is people. Uh, Ron touched on trust and, and uh, cooperation and communication. When we have remote people working, I get this question all the time. How are we supposed to maintain all of that while we're not even watching some of them at home? I myself, I'm remote this week. How does my boss know what I'm doing? How do we know what is going on? Well, the communication and the trust are not just words. They take a lot of time in a company to develop. And once you develop a culture of that, where you do as you say and say as you do, it's a handbook that never fails. It doesn't mean that because you've got people 50% off-site 50% of the time, you forget what your handbook says and you forget the discipline that you're supposed to maintain. Because when you don't maintain discipline and put some kind of uh restraints in order, whether you're on-site and off-site, to maintain the discipline. Your good people will be watching the people that are not doing their job, and it puts a very sour note into their, into their, their mouths. You need to look at your handbook and maintain the discipline that you would if they were on-site. Communication mm -hmm. is huge. Have some kind of feedback from supervisors and managers on a weekly basis for those people who are working from home. Setting goals and objectives, you may have to do a little bit more of that at the beginning of the week. And don't just leave them out there to work on their own rebounds. And if they're not doing the job that you think they're doing, you need to confront and have that conversation. Not to be confrontational, but to let people know you're still in charge and that this is not just, you know, let's have two hour lunch with a friend. It's okay, they don't know where I am, no. You need to put goals and objectives into place. Communication is huge. We need to be able in departmental, in larger companies, the supervisor should be having Zoom departmental uh, conferences, uh, meetings on, on Zoom. We have them twice a week. And, and then quite frankly, I think it brings people even closer. So how do you maintain the 50-50? By communication, by discipline by performance improvement plans, by telling the people at home what you expect them to do. And if they're not doing it, the communication of calling them, Zooming them, conference calling them, don't just leave them out there. Supervisors and managers have to keep in touch with their people. On I'm at 44%, so. Yeah. 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 Was somebody asking a question? Oh, okay. So. So that is my recommendation. It, it is a very difficult thing to make people do what they have to do, especially when you, you don't see them. Uh, address issues immediately. When, the, when things are not going well and you suspect something, you need to address that issue immediately. Give a call, have a Zoom, have a conference call and make these people understand. Uh, and again, it's not always everyone. But when there is a person in a company, whether it be during COVID or not during COVID, that's not acting the way your rules and, and objectives and goals are, to Ron's point, the trust that he had with that client that he talked about did not happen overnight. It happened because the people in his company did as they said and said as they do. 
and they were responsive and they had a respect for each other. You should never allow an employee to melt down that respect that the company has built up. And I call the word reputation. If you allow somebody to start eating away at that, well, then shame on us. We have to really put together a, a discipline and, and, and an organization that stands by what they mean. And unfortunately, and I hate to say it, just get rid of the people that are not doing what they have to do. And if you sense that in a remote situation, there's your red flag. I hope I've answered that. Discipline and termination are very, very important pieces documenting what they're doing wrong, whether they're on site or off site, nothing changes. It's all the same. Your handbook is the same, people are the same. If you de determine that they're not doing the job, address it. And communication, I think it's so important for companies to have rallies at least once a month when they're all off site. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's not lose each other's focus here and let's maintain the reputation of our company. And it's amazing to me how some companies have grown and found new ways to communicate and grow and respect and grow the reputation of the company. I hope I've answered some of that. So don't let your guard down, guys. You need to keep the reputation. Performance reviews are important as well. Don't let them go out the window. It's very important to do your performance re reviews, especially during remote, so that these people get the feedback. They're not getting away with anything. We understand what's going on. Set your goals and objectives. If they're not working out, work on terminating the employee. They're affecting the reputation of your company. Absolutely. And if that's not a great way to wrap things up, I don't know what is. Uh, folks, this was a great discussion. I hope everybody took something away from this. We are currently living in a new world where we're having issues with people, processes, um, supply issues, and, you know, going back to the relationships that everybody kind of all, everybody mentioned something, which I thought was interesting about relationships, whether it's your relationship with your employees internally, whether it's your, your relationships with your suppliers overseas, the communication has to be there. The message needs to be the same. If everybody's trying to get to the same location, we all need to know where we are and where we're headed and how we're getting there. So I think this is a great place to, to wrap things up here. I wanna thank everybody on the call. Uh, don't drop just yet. Um, I, I, I think on what I wanna do next is uh, bring on Bernita. If Bernita is still on the call. Yes, I'm still on the call. Okay. I think I want, what I'm going to do now is wrap things up for supply chain briefs, and then I will pass it over to Bernita. You can always cap, uh, catch this episode on YouTube, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you stream your podcast from. My name is Joseph Moretta, and thank you for joining Supply Chain Briefs. Bernita?